Before we get into this episode, I wanted to remind you to go to curatemeals.com and order your meal for either October 19th in Rochester or October 25th in Buffalo. Uh, We had a great first time at the Nowhere Lounge in Kenmore in Buffalo, and Three Heads has been absolutely killing it with their beer this season. So I recommend you buy your meal today and join us and hang out and talk food and drink some amazing beer at Three Heads on the 19th, or catch the new Nowhere Lounge in Kenmore on October 25th. I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town Podcast. Well, this is kind of the perfect Rochester day. We're one day away from the official start of summer, and we've got some summer-like spirits in our glass, and I have a guest. Why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Absolutely. Um, My name is Devin Trevathan. I am the co-founder and co-owner of Liba Spirits, a nomadic distilling company. Wow. We're going to break all of that down. Yes. But if people, so just ahead, if people want to find Liba Spirits or learn more about it away from what we're talking about, where can they go find it? I love doing this at the top. Um, They can absolutely go to libaspirits.com, L-I-B-A-S-P-I-R-I-T-S.com. Uh, or at Leva Spirits on Instagram or Facebook or, I mean, we have a Twitter. We're not that active. It's um, a very different lane to run a Twitter versus running an Instagram or Facebook. Instagram and Facebook run in the same lanes, but Twitter, you got to be so active. You got to be so active and so concise. And yeah. I am just not that. I am like <laughs> loquacious and scared of posting all the time well and when you're using the term loquacious i mean twitter is not for you in general (laughs) exactly (laughs) i'm not good at keeping things every especially talking about that's the thing especially talking about this industry every single time i try to even get into a one part of it it ends up being a everything's so much more complicated than 140 characters or 240 characters or whatever they're giving me i mean nothing everything is everything is straightforward but nothing is simple Exactly. And I don't like making, you know, grand statements without a ton of explanation. So it's just, it literally in every single way is not the medium for me. Yeah. Unless I kind of feel like it's dead. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very different place. Like I like it, but it's also, it tends to end up being a echo chamber of extremes. Yeah. I mean, which it makes sense. And, you know, I, a lot of people, I like a lot of people in some of those echo chambers. Sure. Some um, people do such a good job, and I think it's really funny what they do. I do think that my favorite Twitter accounts tend to be funny. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I am good at being funny in that kind of way. I am terrible. I just, whenever I think of Twitter, I just think of, like, a huge, ever-expanding warehouse, basically, <laughs> with people <laughs> on different, like platforms that are in different on different lengths you know or different heights i mean and everybody's shouting into the same warehouse and some people are on a really high platform and they maybe have like uh, a horn megaphone a megaphone to to you know project their voice louder and it just seems so intense and saturated with voice that i'm like what am i gonna do here (laughs) what am i gonna possibly bring to the table well, now that we did our, our planned uh, intro talking about the philosophy of social media, yeah. uh, let's talk about a, being a nomadic distillery. Yeah. Um, so, um, one, we, we've got a gin in our glass. We'll talk yes. about that, and then we'll talk about uh, stuff like that. But what is a nomadic distillery? 
Um, so it's not a thing that has a gr- very well-established definition. Sure. First off. Uh, so the way that we operate basically is that it's me and my business partner slash co-founder Colton Weinstein. Um, he and I will go to distilleries all around the world that are pre-existing owned by somebody else. We will drop in, we will pay the owners of that distillery to use the space, use the facility, and we will produce our own. We'll actually distill our own spirits there using the facility, using local suppliers of whatever raw materials, and ideally also spending a little bit of time understanding a bit of the distilling culture, the um, agricultural history, whatever techniques are, are common or styles of spirit are common for that area, taking all of that and kind of putting it in and then making something that references all of that through our lens, which is starting to get, I think, further away from just like the, the logistics, which I'll stick with for a sec. So yeah, yeah, we just, we, we drop in, we basically like, you know, moonlight distill or ghost distill. We're just kind of using a space, using a distillery during times that that producer would naturally not need to use it every day most distilleries of like a medium size are not running all day every day most distilleries i mean there's like a huge distilling boom all over the world right all these distilleries popped up most of them are not constantly using their space they're not always running production so it's great for us to offer something to them a passive income Mm -hmm. a little bit and it allows us to use all of these great raw materials yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting concept, and I, I love the idea of using things that aren't being used. I mean, filling in that space and not not tearing anything down to build something. Yeah, is yeah. a very uh, I find that a very virtuous value. You know, it's not. It wasn't born entirely out of being virtuous. Yeah, I'll be totally upfront. A huge part of us launching this business the way that we did came from the fact that Colt and I both come from a distilling industry background, Uh, myself more in sales in front of house and also writing and like brand management, him entirely in production and distillation. And we knew intimately how expensive it was going to be, which was extraordinarily expensive. It's a very capital intensive business, especially if you want to actually open up your own production space. And especially if you want to do anything aged. Exactly. The amount of money on the hoof when just just for production space and then for laying anything down to be aged, especially if you're going to grow, is a huge upfront investment. It's so, yeah, every single step. I mean, to to either start completely from scratch and build out or renovate an existing space and then to put in the system, just to buy the system, but then to actually like put in the system is extremely expensive. And then to produce and you know possibly lay down to age. And then to hire all of the people who need to then build this brand, this company. It's so it's so expensive. It's such oh, yeah. a high cost. And we didn't have that. We did not have that kind of capital. And you wonder, well, you don't really wonder why so many small distilleries are started by people who had, you know, great 
successful careers as doctors or lawyers or something because they have the capital. Yeah. They have access to the capital. Oh, and that makes sense. Or the connections to get to that kind of capital yeah. and willing to take the risk or have the, you know, have the support to be able to take that risk. It's 100%. And you know, it's, that's the case with so many things in society is Absolutely. access. It's access to resources where there's doors open that you don't even think about being open. They just are. Wealth begets more wealth. And I had kind of a unique position I still do but I I have for a while written for um Artisan Spirit magazine which is a trade publication um and what I kind of became best at or what I was what I like to do and what seemed to work well was um spotlights of distilleries so awesome. I talked to it was I still love doing that it's one of my favorite things but I've talked to so many small distillery medium distillery owners and heard their stories. And it was so, there was a lot of consistency in the fact that they came from some kind of other industry before coming here. And that's wonderful. And that's amazing to see. And I wish them all the best, but it was kind of like, where's all the production background Yeah. prior to starting distillation? Cause it's not something that's easy to just like pick up overnight. No, there's, there's a lot of finesse. There's one, a lot of science a lot <laughs> to distilling. I mean, the, Science of distilling is basically like one: Are you going to kill somebody? Yeah. That's the science. That's part. a big part. That's the science part more than anything least, else. Yeah, to have a baseline. That's right. that's that. You're not going to kill anybody, and then all the other stuff is the science of how to start finding something that's going to be tasty. Yeah, and that's starting to find something that's tasty, mm-hmm. and then the rest is the art. Then a you're down to how do you. When do you cut? What's the right cut? What part of, do you want any tails? Do you want this? Right. It all depends on intentionality. When do you infuse your botanicals? When, right. But all the, we'll we'll talk that? more of this when we get to specifics. Sure. But yeah, it is a, it is not as simple as homebrewing. You know, homebrewing <laughs> beer, right? Homebrewing beer, you can get across something that is capable with a rough amount of knowledge. Absolutely. Um, and with like a can-do attitude. Yeah. For sure. Um, distilling is a very different thing. It's a science. Yeah. It is. It really is. Um, on many levels, you are dealing with chemistry. You are dealing with physical sciences. You are dealing with food science knowledge. And that is the background that I, I don't have, but that my business partner has in spades, which is awesome to have access to that. It's good to have complementary skill sets. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to pivot off to was I wanted to talk about what it isn't because I think this is an interest, what, what the distillery isn't. Yes. Um, because it brings up a whole side conversation. So I will front with my, what I would expect it. Uh So if I would have heard this and I didn't understand the story, Uh I would have assumed that this is a off label production from another distillery where they produce a product for you. Right. Yeah. A lot of people think that we are not the ones who are doing the distillation. So can you describe what that kind of mentality there? So industry wide, you know, I'll, I'll say from an industry wide standpoint, there is any number of any number of brands that you are aware of where they do not produce any of their own whiskey or any of their own other spirits. Yes. A wide variety of known brands produce nothing other than branding and yep. often they will choose their own profile that that dis- that distillery will make for them. Yes. Uh but um 
what this industry and other industries are plagued with is a lack of transparency. Yeah. And that's kind of one of those things where I think people get disillusioned sometimes by those kind of processes. Yeah. I am. Sourcing is like the, it's such a huge practice. I don't think that people even realize how huge it is though. I think that they do get that it's happening um, because there is definitely become a much more savvy consumer base over the last couple of years. Um, but it's still pretty surprising to me that uh, people don't know, like the lay bourbon consumer or whiskey consumer doesn't always know that MGP exists, considering they're probably like 80% of what they're consuming comes from the same place. Yeah, so background for everybody who might not be aware, because we're we are a wide ranging. We're not spirits focused that's true, all the that's time. True. It's very it's food. Yes, about we're town. we are all over the place. That's and true. to be fair, I've done a lot of spirits nerdery over the last few years. Yeah. Um. So MGP is one of the biggest producers of spirits in the country. Yeah. Not necessarily the whole thing by volume, but they're probably really high. They are. Yeah. There was at at one point. I mean, this is probably lore that was repeated over and over again. And who knows if this is actual verifiable fact that will not stop me from repeating it though here. Of course not. Of course not. So at one point and MGP stands for Midwest grain, Midwestern grain products. That sounds right. I I didn't remember. It is in Indiana. Yep. Yep. So at one point they, there was a statistic that I heard that was going around pretty heavily. I think that they, it was something like their 95% rye blend was actually accounted for something like 90% of rye whiskeys that were on the market at that time. Yeah. So what, uh, what Devin's referring to is the 95.5 blend of rye, which is 95% rye, 5% barley uh, for the enzymes, which are required to, well, not required, but assist in the digestion of the starches, turning them into digestible sugars where you can ferment them and turn them into a product that can be distilled. Sorry for the science. Um, (laughs) Um, so that's a very common mash bill. And, um, if you see a rye that you haven't seen before on the shelf and you look on the back of it and they're somewhat, um, somewhat transparent, they will, you will see distilled in Indiana Yes, and the brand will be from whatever state they're from, which means yes. that it is made by MGP by definition. Yeah. Um, and, and you can, there is kind of a little hack, um, to check on the back and see, because legally you cannot say distilled by your company if it, it wasn't, or, you know, so if, if it just says bottled by, if it just says packaged by, that can sometimes be an indication that perhaps the owner of the brand is not the person who distilled it. The back wrap, well, the flip side of that, is that actually, I don't think that our bottles. <laughs> Lack of transparency. No, but it's because. This is, this of, is why I brought you on. I wanted to accuse you of a lack yes, of transparency. This is a, yeah, this is an intervention. Um, no, so we, because of our whole, the nature of our business, it, so we are able to, with Lafcadia, with the botanical rum that we made, it does say distilled and bottled by Liba Spirits, New Orleans, Louisiana. But because of the fact that we had to import the gin since we made it in Europe and Austria, it says imported and bottled by Liba spirits. And that, that makes sense. And that makes sense. So yeah. that is just, I am both giving you the rule and the exception at the exact same time. <laughs> 
but it so, is usually like a little hack yeah. to look for. And, and something that we can say very clearly is that um, we are not saying that those products are bad products. No, and MGP that's, is that's one of really the, not it at all. MGP is one of the highest quality distillers in the country, and many of their products are exceptionally good and exceptionally consistent. And there is a ton of work and a lot of really smart people who are doing incredible things to maintain the efficiency and consistency that they have at that distillery or yeah. at that production facility. And, and it's incredible. Yeah, and like no no shade, I've got plenty of MGP no on my shelf and it is I enjoy it. delicious. It is delightful stuff. And really good. And their signature is obvious when you start to learn it, but yep. at the same point, it's Doesn't a really good signature. Any less good. It it really does and it's kind of like to what you were saying, what we are not. And a big thing that we are not is we are not sourcing. Um, and I think that kind of, it's a, it's a really tough conversation to not necessarily have. It's hard to come down on one side definitively when yeah. you're in a position like myself mm -hmm. where I, I'm a producer, I, you know, call in this distilling company. We do not source. And that was because we had the distilling knowledge. So like, why would we not use that? in this context and, and kind of use that to do something cool and unique. But a lot of people I know do source and a lot of people I know source and distill their products. We were talking about Maggie's farm in um, Pittsburgh, yeah, uh, Pennsylvania distillery that I used to work for as a brand ambassador in Nashville, but they have a product called their 50, 50 dark rum. I don't know if it's still called 50, 50 dark, but it was a blend of a aged rum from the Caribbean and a rum that they made themselves. And I think that's really interesting. I think that there is a huge part of distilling that is about blending and character creation and deciding on the profile that is kind of at its best. It should be a separate skill set and it should be a separate job. And it's, it's a lot to, you know, task one person with both, the creation of all of that raw spirit and and distillate and then the blending and the proofing down and and to be tasked with doing that entire thing that's just like it's it's always better to have more palates tasting what you're doing yeah the absolutely i mean you think of you think of some of the legacy distilleries in scotland where they have people who blend only that is blend all they only. do yeah blending is a very legitimate uh job specific job within the distillery that should i think probably if you can do it it should be because i also think there's something with like if you've if you've been the person who's made a spirit and you've put all this work in perhaps you will be a little bit um biased as to what whether or not there are any faults whether it is ready for you know you you're gonna kind of get attached it's a long process you get really attached to these things i yeah. can really vouch for that because i haven't like preternaturally attached <laughs> to my spirits but it's good to have fresh eyes fresh mouths on your on your spirit always always a good thing yeah um but yeah so that blending sourcing all legitimate all very legitimate and can be done really well i do think that there are people who come into this business a lot of people in recent years who perhaps see it as a, I mean, they see it as like a potential to quickly make money. Mm -hmm. um, I, 
I don't know how that's the case. <laughs> I don't know how that, I mean, again, it's kind of like what we were saying, wealth begets wealth. If you have all of sure. the, the resources to like crew, you know, hire a whole team to build a slam and brand and you know, put that out on media, blast it out, create every, then you can create the well machine right away. Then great. Yeah. Maybe it is really quick, but um, all of that, that's all very legitimate and there's great people doing that stuff. That's just, yeah, that is not what we are. Yeah. So let's talk about, so you said we talked saying, Hey, you are a two person operation. Yep. You're distilling at other things. What was, so what was the genesis of figuring out, Hey, we want to start with, so the first two things we started with were both infused spirits. Yes. So accurate. what was what was the drive to do that and why go in the realm of infused spirits versus just straight whatever? So the you know, I think it would be great if I could say that both our first spirit two spirits were really well thought out. <laughs> Something that we had really planned for. That's not what happened. Um the our first spirit 1643 is a gin. We call it an Alpine gin because we made it in the Austrian Alps. Um, and then our second spirit, Lafcadio, is a botanical rum. They are both infused with botanicals. Um, that honestly just kind of came as a consequence of us knowing that we were going to make something likely unaged, not intending to really, I didn't, I didn't want to make an aged spirit right out of the gate. Um, and then, it was just kind of a perfect, like with the gin, for instance, the first product that we made. The reason why we even were able to go to this distillery, um, Kuen's Naturbrennerei. Sorry to all the German-speaking folks who are probably <laughs> cringing at my pronunciation, but I'm not German. Um, the distillery where we made that is in southern Austria. It's about 40 minutes north of the Italian border. Gorgeous farm orchard distillery. The Buildings are beautiful alpine kind of like thatched woodeny roofs with like white walls. It's very picturesque and beautiful. Um, it has been there for literally hundreds of years, been the same family since 1643, hence the name. Uh, but the reason why we even knew about this distillery is because the current brothers, the two brothers who are running it currently, they, one of them came over to, Nashville where I used to live and where I met my business partner Colton uh, and we both were working at Corsair Distillery at the time. One of the two brothers Florian came and wanted to kind of shadow Colton at Corsair and did so for I think three months because they were going to start distilling whiskeys and they wanted to learn about smoking grain and Corsair had a really experimental grain smoking program. Yeah so uh, just an aside on Corsair I know uh my friend uh, George and I, when we were doing some more In Good Spirits episodes, we did a we tasted a Corsair product, and it was tremendous. Oh gosh, which one was it? I don't recall. It was oh, it man. was great. They have they have a lot of skews. Yeah, it yeah. was. It's a fascinating distiller, and it's worth looking on the shelf for because it is. There's a lot of creativity and a lot of different angles to go on. Yes. So usually when we're doing this, I try to give people recs on like, hey, what what should you go try? Yeah. That's not just brands you're already aware of. Yes. Um, Corsair is one where it's not going to be wildly expensive. No, they've main they've really maintained like a nice kind of even 
affordable level, particularly for their whiskeys. And it's affordable and it's interesting. So that's one I would definitely recommend buying something off the shelf Yeah. Um, because you can buy it off the shelf and it's legit good at a price where you're not going to be sad you bought it. Yeah. Even if it's not your absolute favorite profile, it's going to be of quality and it's going to be just is going to be a good value. So definitely look for Corsair. Yeah, I think... Corsair has managed to maintain a interesting place. I It was very much like a second wave kind of member uh, entrant into the craft spirits industry. So like caught some national, international attention and acclaim and then maybe didn't go right into like the huge national like uh, zeitgeist as a craft distillery, but has always maintained solid products and has had some really good distillers, particularly uh, Colton being one of them for many years. Um, And it's now being run by a very good friend of mine, Lorna Conrad, who is awesome. But I would say, yeah, go for it. Try it. Your products are solid. It's a tremendous thing to be able to find that kind of stuff. And it's one of the, the lucky things you do when you taste and you taste as many things as we both do is you can find those. Oh yeah great midpoints where it is a quality product at a good value that's interesting and you don't have to go hunting for it on the secondary market. You don't yeah. have to spend the money and time to go do it. You can just buy something that's delicious. Yeah. It it's important. Is, it is nice to know. And I, I do feel for people who I've been now in this industry for a long time and have been so focused on, on knowing it and you still don't really know it. No. Even when you spend years, there's still so many brands. There's so many distilleries. It's, it's impossible to keep track of everything. Absolutely. But it's nice to, you know, from our perspective, we, we can go into a liquor store in most parts of the country and kind of be like, okay, I, you know, I know those guys or I know that, that person and I can more or less kind of find something. It must be hard coming from a perspective where you're not surrounded by this stuff 24 seven, trying to go into a shop and, make sense of what all of these brands are and why something is worthwhile versus something else. And I think that is kind of the reason why the whole lack of transparency thing hasn't been a problem. It's, there's no foundation of knowledge that we can really build on to increase transparency. No, I, I find it, I find it's a very interesting topic. We're, we'll talk about this when we take our uh, break, but um, I think it's, it's something that all of us who are in and around this and are conscientious of trying to be good stewards of, of, you know, good products and, you know, quality distilling. And, and um, I'm going to tie this to wine as well. Yeah. It's, it's our responsibility as people are trying to communicate this stuff to try to communicate the fun of learning about it. Yeah. Not the scariness of, the words and the verbiage and the and the vocab and everything else and trying to communicate how much fun it is to learn about yeah. and how much there is to learn and how welcoming people are if you're inquisitive. It's I think it's it's our one of our biggest responsibilities is to do that. One hundred percent. And I think you nailed it with what you just said. How the welcome the welcoming nature, the hospitality that is inherent in this industry. It really is a beautifully uh, accepting, open, in my experience, like just generally very giving industry because most of the people who stick around 
are, are they just, they want to gather. They want to do that most quintessential thing that you do with friends or family and whatever you sit down and you, you know, break bread and you share a drink. Like that's essential to a lot of the way that we socialize. And, and I think that that runs deep through so many of the people in this industry. And that was kind of what was at the core of the relationship that developed between Florian, this guy from, from Kuen's and Colton, they didn't know each other, but Colton said, come on, you know, if you want to study with me for a little while, like learn about our production, please. And Florian stayed with Colton for those three months. They lived, he lived in his, in his apartment with him and they became super tight buddies. And then when it was time for us to embark on this adventure, we were like, well, we definitely know somebody who has a really beautiful facility in a kind of faraway place that would be interesting. We're going to call him up. And of course, Florian, the absolute wonderful person that he was, said, come on over, even though he had a new baby. Oh, wow. That's he let amazing. Us stay in his house. It's, that's just, it's one of those like, yeah, you, it's the right thing and you know it's the right thing when you find it. Yeah. It's really, it really is like, we, Colton and I talk about this because we do feel this way, but there is something about our business that has ended up being a huge kind of show of love for this industry that we both are, are very, very enamored with and very, very happy to be a part of. Yeah. Um, it's, there is so much like everybody that we've interacted with has just been open arms all the time. So supportive. Everybody that we tell that we're doing this new model with, they want us to come and make something with them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to be around. It's almost like you stumbled on <laughs> the mission you didn't know you had yeah. until you got there. And then it just became so glaringly obvious that it's like everything you wanted to do, but yeah. you didn't know until you were there. Yeah, exactly. Which is great to keep in mind because it's very stressful and hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and that but goes without it. saying. But it's a mission and yeah. I have to continue. I have to, you know, go forth. And now we're on a mission to take a break oh, yes. and we're going to come back and we're going to taste both of the spirits and talk about just talk about how delicious they are and then we'll taste some other stuff. So we'll be right back. Before we finish off this episode with Liebe Spirits, wanted to remind you to go to curatemeals.com to order your meal for Rochester on October 19th or Buffalo on October 25th. Um, amazing meals coming up. Really excited to share some new places with you. And also want to remind you to go to Lunch Door Podcasts on Instagram. You can follow them there and see all the rest of the shows on the fantastic network that I am a part of. And now, back to the rest of the episode. So in our break, we have determined that the journey is irrelevant <laughs> and the end point is the only thing that matters. Um, and we have now become uh, generic libertarians where the end justifies the means. So we're good. For um, some people. For people <laughs> who are generally distasteful, it is only the destination that matters and the journey is irrelevant. Yeah, so that's our philosophical moment. And now we're going to taste some delicious spirits from Liba Spirits. Yes. And um, we have the um, 1643 Alpine Gin from Distilled in Austria. Yes, distilled by us. So let's talk about... Austria. What makes this distinctly Austrian? So let's first, let's define gin for people. 
Absolutely. Um, so Jin just needs the, really needs the presence of Juniper. Some people have, um, there has been language in the past that has said a predominant flavor of Juniper. Which is inherently undefinable. Exactly. Very hard to pinpoint and test, obviously. Yeah. And then you had, and I think unnecessary because you had the development over the last couple of decades of different categories of gin, including the contemporary category, which I would say is pretty much marked by the fact that juniper is not the predominant flavor anymore versus London dry, which is that is what London dry is, is juniper first and then a pretty sparse botanical list next that just kind of accentuates that character yeah so L- london dry has a distinct character with certain roots and you know uh, dried citrus peels and it is a very distinct flavor profile that does vary within a realm of variation very much so and then modern gin which i'd say if i'm picking a brand that people will know um you will you could say hendrix is a sure. great example of a great example large distillery that is modern or contemporary in that it is driven by many different botanicals and it is a different profile. Many of the different ones nowadays can be floral or this or that. Um, And uh, you have produced a gin that is to me smells like a great balance of traditional and not traditional. Thank you. I actually feel like it kind of hits that as well. Cause you know, the, London dry category, which I subcategory, I guess, which I do. I do really like certain London dry gins. Um, it is not necessarily, it doesn't always work for everybody. A lot of people react poorly to that character, that kind of sharp character. And you asked what made this distinctly Austrian and it mm-hmm. is kind of Austrian slash Italian. Sure. Cause we pulled from both countries. Oh, it's I mean, Tyrolean really should be what we call it. Cause oh, it's wow. that most Tyrol region in southern austria and northern italy which is a beautiful agricultural region well it's also something that we can say about general european crossovers yes within the border areas of many different european countries the cultures merge into some sort of hybrid version of that um uh, like uh, uh, the alsace region sure in between you know france and germany you know for tasting wines Like you will taste a distinct Alsatian style, which is really a cross of the two. Absolutely. And many different regions are like that. I think people forget sometimes, I mean, I forget sometimes how small, like geographically countries in Europe are and how it makes sense that it's actually a lot of uh, like overlapping of especially agricultural regions because agricultural regions tend to be larger swaths of land. And we do have states in the United States that can basically take up an entire agricultural region because we have so much land, but it's not, you know, over there, it's not quite the same. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot more tradition of separation and tradition of all these other things. But, um, so like, like on my shelf, like I have an, I have an Alpine, uh, Amaro that I love. I know. I saw that. I really want to try it. Oh, we will try it after. I'm excited. And that's a really good thing to bring out because I think that when people hear Alpine, they have a pretty specific thought Mm -hmm. and it's, probably going to be closer to that which is like uh, elderflower or like those kind of um hardier botanicals that grow up pretty high on the mountain i'm very excited for you to try that because it will be very different than you expect oh really okay yeah. great great because i think that that's 
there are great examples of that kind of character, mm-hmm. that that profile that I think is is wonderful. That's actually not really what ours is. Um, ours ultimately our gin is really influenced by all of these beautiful, fresh botanicals that we had access to, including a fresh Italian juniper. Yeah, so so fresh juniper, very different than a fully dried juniper. Very different. Very different from the majority of gins because I would say by far the vast, vast majority of gins that you try are made with a dried juniper, and that is a very specific kind of flavor profile that is obviously, I would say, most on display in London dry gins. Mm-hmm. And so our gin, though it does have a really high juniper content, because we really just love the character of this juniper, um, it's so different than what you would expect. And it's really not, that's why I can't really call it London dry, even though it, there's a lot of juniper in there, because the juniper character is just kind of soft and open and fresh and floral there's no flowers we didn't actually include any flowers but there's definitely like a floral thing there yeah it's a there's a distinct florality and we're going to dive into the specifics now so the other thing that it has in spades is a very fresh citrusy drive Mm. where um often if you're using a lot of you know dried uh you know like dried citrus peels you can get a very distinct vibe to it this is like remarkably bright and sharp when it comes to the citrus yeah so the citrus was an incredible experience uh we drove actually with the with florian one of the two brothers that's running the distillery down we just loaded up into a sprinter van and drove down to italy to verona um and we went to this crazy italian um, food market, which I was kind of thinking when you told us about this, I was thinking like romantic Italian market, um, <laughs> stones covered in vines and like the sunset and dappled sunlight on my skin. It's not, it was not that it was a very, very legitimate checkpoint before you could get in, had to have paperwork, had to be signed up starts at like 2am Nice by 6am when we showed up, it was pretty much, you know, it was starting to wind down. Wow. Um, People rolling around, not even rolling, whipping around in um, forklifts, driving them Italian style, which is that they will run your ass over if you <laughs> get in the way. They'll kill you without a second thought. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a mad dash. We just kind of were, it was myself and Colton, two Americans who speak English and not much else. Uh, and then um, Florian, an Austrian who speaks incredible English, but not Italian, with you know, armed with a, a peeler, a knife and Google translate. So yeah. you could go around and just like sample. He was also looking for citrus for his distillations. And we were just going around, we were sampling lemons, oranges, mandarins, and just kind of peeling off some, you know, playing with it, seeing, yeah, what kind of oil content it had and then cutting it open to look inside and then attempting to haggle. In That's a different beautiful. language through Google Translate. That is tremendous. It was a mad dash. I did the most me thing in the entire world, and I wore the wrong shoes. I oh, wore a boot no. that had that was not comfortable, and I was just. It was you know so early. I was jet lagged. It was it was. I was kind of fully in that um, twilight zone where you're in jet lag and mm-hmm. tired, and you haven't slept well, and it's six a.m. and you're in a giant warehouse that you can't see the end of on either side of you. And there's a bunch of Italian men running around um, (laughs) where everything was just kind of dreamy dream state. But we got, I'm telling you the most beautiful 
lemons particularly and oranges, but these gorgeous big bumpy lemons that were just so, so gorgeous. And we packed up the entire van full of citrus, went back to the distillery in Austria and started peeling them that night. Didn't stop for like six hours and then spent the rest of the next day. Peeled through tons of citrus. Not tons, actually, but But, a uh, lot. A lot of citrus. And, you know, I've talked about this now with some other people. Um, I was talking to somebody who made a lemon limoncello, and they were talking about it. So peeling for distillation is different. Peeling fresh citrus for distillation is different than peeling, like, at a bar, where you kind of you get some of that pith on the peel, and that's fine because... It gives it even like structure and you're not going to be chewing on that. And it's, so it's, it's not, but that pith has bitter flavor elements. So when you're peeling for distillation, you got to be careful. You cannot take too much pith. Oh, so it's very surface. It's very, it's a light touch. Okay. Yeah. That and makes sense. It's, it's kind of a skill that you have to develop. Um, Cause if a lot of people, if you don't have the motion down, you're just going to be kind of like hacking off little quarter sized chunks of it at a time and you have to have a very sharp peeler you have to have a good yeah we had to we went out and bought fresh good quality peelers because that's going to be you're going to be maddened by yeah you know you have to dig in then you get too much you're like exactly and then you have to kind of like reset and start again because it is kind of that if you if you get angry (laughs) you're going to do a worse job so you always have to it's kind of like any type of like fine motor skill type of thing you gotta you gotta keep it cool because otherwise you're gonna ruin it. <sighs> Slice the Exhale. citrus. Exactly. Slice the citrus. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to brag, but I am absolutely a. I can crush peeling. <laughs> I am the best <laughs> peeler that I know personally. Oh, well, that's all that really matters. Exactly. So, <laughs> people of the Rochester area just know I am the peeling queen. Yes. For distillation in particular. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we're tasting, and what I'll say is. Um, from the front end, we've got, you know, a good amount of sweetness, but not, you know, it's not over sweet. It's not like under anything. It's not sweetened, but it has a beautiful front sweetness going into the citrus. And then going into the end, you get that little bit of lingering bitterness, Yep. but just enough to make you want to go back for the next sip. Yeah. And enough of the root body to give it character, but it's not definitively root forward. Yeah. We didn't want to do too much uh herbal root we we kind of like and this is a big um continuous element to our production we do want to take all of these things that we kind of think of making up as making up terroir like the concept of terroir is the all of the the natural stuff the climate the the soil everything of an area the water but it's also i think the human element of distilling practices and choices that are made and so we want to have all of that stuff and then we want to, you know, kind of cycle it through our lens, yeah. how we view these spirits. What we, you know, because if we're not doing it with our taste and to our liking, then it's kind of like, what's the point? I think looking at lens is generally important when you're evaluating anything. Yeah. Is like, what lens were they making it through? What are they presenting it as? Yeah. Um, those are all very important things. And I think it ties to any number of things that you'll find around any around any of your journey whether it's you know whether it's art if you're looking at movies whether it's food and what kind of thing are they trying to present to you what was their goal have they accomplished their goal and then whether or not you like it or it's delicious 
is seen through that lens versus, well, it doesn't have ketchup on it, so it's not good. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm being over-exaggerating, of course, but... You could put ketchup in there. It probably wouldn't be good, though. <laughs> um, and it's it's always important to look at that. Um, and actually, on the second, third, and fourth sips, I'm actually getting more of the herbal and the body to it. Yeah. Because at first, the influx of that very bright citrus, kind of your palate has to acclimate to that. For sure. And then you actually get more of that you know, that harder, harder herbal and root base, Yeah, which I actually really enjoy that it has a little bit of evolution to it. We wanted to bring in something to, to kind of give it a nice structure. And that was definitely the herbal and, and very much like spice element. We did use, um, like Austrian ginger and rosemary and nutmeg and black pepper and long pepper. So all of these, we did use some really great spices to give it this nice, like backbone, I gave it structure. It's the kind of thing that makes you go back for the next sip. And that's the that's the important part with any something like this. Great in a cocktail, great Absolutely. with tonic, great with other things. But if we're drinking it and we want to have something that you want to go back for the next sip straight, that means it's gotta have real complexity. Yes. Or and else we're gonna get bored really fast. Really quick. Yeah, I have definitely put down many Glen Karens that I have not entirely finished. Um, but I thank you. I appreciate that. I, we definitely want to be, you know, the story of what we do and how we make our spirits is, I think, interesting, if I do say so myself, and um, something that's worthwhile. But I want us to be, like, producers of really quality spirits first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, again what's the point if you can't really stand behind it? Like you have to stand behind it with so much of what you have. You have to bring this stuff out all the time and watch people drink it. Yeah. How I feel so bad for anybody who's doing that with <laughs> a not great spirit. Cause God, how, how is that experience? So like um, we met officially for the first time at uh, one of the Rochester Cocktail Revival events, yes. the the Grand uh, Spirits Tasting Spectacular Spirits at the Metropolitan Building. I love the word spectacular. Oh, and it really is. It it's, really was. It's a fun event, and you know, all of our friends at the Rochester Cocktail Revival put on another great event, and Crushed. it was great to see so many amazing things. I think we officially met there for the first time. Yeah, and I got to taste there, but the my question is. What is that experience like going Ugh. through that over and over and trying to figure out what they're thinking? And how often do you have to like figure out what they're thinking because they don't know how to tell you what they want to tell you? It's not, it's, you know, it's a very complex experience. It's a very yeah. complex way of interacting with people because you are really presenting yourself through I mean, that's that's how I feel. I feel like when I'm putting this stuff out there, I'm like really putting me out there in a well, large especially way. this because yeah. it is definitively personal. It is so personal. These these little bottles of spirits have really they do feel like an extension of me, you know. I, I and also obviously Colton in a big way, and like we are so connected to these things. So yeah, when I'm bringing them out, and I don't know if people. A, people don't always necessarily assume that I'm the owner or the founder of the company, which is totally reasonable. Um, and then B, kind, kind of, kind of reasonable, kind of reasonable. Let, let's, let's be a little unfair and say it's kind of reasonable. And 
we'll leave it at that because yeah. we we should be dispelling some of the that's very true assumptions that the very true i don't necessarily look like your typical brand or distillery oh you know we don't have a distillery but distilling company owner in the sense that i think you know i dress more colorfully than everybody i don't wear flannels um i don't have a beard and i'm not wearing like a trucker hat which colton satisfies all of those oh he's yeah he, so we're checking that box as far as like, <laughs> yeah, i mean if you don't check that box are you really in the craft beverage industry exactly you gotta have one guy in a flannel rocking a hat that's a very <laughs> classic with a beer that's a very classic distilling slash beverage industry yeah. 101 but um so so there is kind of that like you know i get people to come up tell them that this is you know this company that i co-founded this is what and then there's the sense the well the element of having to try to quickly explain what we do and i don't think i have that down perfectly yet. it's hard so hard again concise that's not me yeah especially with this i want to you know i'm constantly trying to tailor how i present it and and i'm i'm i do try to be very aware of how people are reacting i don't want to lose people too quickly so I try to give it to them real quick. You know, I, I try to break it down. I say, like, we are nomadic. We travel to distill. So we're going to these places. We're distilling. And then I get right into the products because I don't know. It's too bad. I wish people were more like, whoa, that's nuts. How do you do that? But people really do want to, you know, in that context, particularly at a tasting, they want to taste. So let's get to it, you know. Well, and then it's a different story you have to tell when you're at a when you're at a store or you're at a distributor or you're at this or you're at that. It's every pitch is different. Exactly. And yeah, I've I've learned to kind of um start at one level of geekery or nerdiness mm-hmm. of of uh depth about what we're doing and then obviously if I feel like somebody's interested, I'm I'm happy to more than happy to go really into the, the details. Yeah. I, I just find the art of doing that and what you have to bring out of yourself and the, you know, the internal work it takes to get good at that. I <sighs> I'm learning all the time. I'm, I'm getting better every time I do it, but it's I'm, I'm never I never feel like I'm there. I always I feel like I'm fascinated missing. fascinated by the psychology of it because some people, it's sales, right? To a oh, certain yeah. extent, it's sales. And I honestly am not a good salesperson in the sense that I am like, I'm not the best at just pushing through a moment to get to that goal. Yeah. You know, just driving, driving, driving towards that goal. I will be very conciliatory and like, I want to hear what people have to say and I'm really good if it's something I'm genuinely passionate about. I would not be good if I didn't really have passion for it. I would be terrible. And again, it is, it's sales are, I have seen some people who are just naturals. They are just exceptional in that role. They step right into it. It is beautiful to watch. It's like watching Jordan hit those three, three, I don't know. I don't know sports. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say so close, so So close close. to an apt example. He's good, right? He was good at sports. Michael Jordan, he was okay. Yeah. Yeah. He did golf or whatever even. Yeah. I mean, 
and lost a ton of money gambling on golf. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, Good speaking stuff. of gambling on golf, yeah, um, we've got uh, we've got rum. See, isn't that that's rum. one of those pure transitions was, I just did? That was a gorgeous transition. That was nice. Yeah, that was marvelous. certainly not jarring Seamless, at all, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have so this is a botanical oh. infused rum, and yes. we're going to talk about what it is not again. Okay. This is not. I love this game. A spiced rum, which is what no. many people know rum is. So explain why it is not a spiced rum and why it's different. I'm so happy you brought this up. This is actually one of my favorite little nuggets, little things to get into for the spirits category. Mm, nuggets. Um, nuggets. Yeah, now I'm thinking of chicken nuggets. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I mentioned that I used to work for Maggie's Farm. They had a spiced rum. I think spiced rum as a category is m much maligned. Much, much, much. And so I will speak for myself um, and say that I think it is rightfully maligned amongst what most people taste. And it is a category that can be done very well. Yes. But the majority of what most people understand spiced rum to be is actively bad. Also, yes. Yeah. It wasn't like a few bad apples. It was like a very disgusting spoiled bunch. And then if you dig, 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 you can maybe find, you can then find a couple of little like, you know, quality apples buried underneath. So right. I do not, I don't blame anybody for having negative thoughts on spiced rum, but spiced rum is something that is not, does not have a good, which is too bad because you can, so Maggie's Farm made a spiced rum that was gorgeous because it was a dry finish. They really focused on just like the spices um, I forget exactly what was in there, but it was like cinnamon and some other things. And it was beautiful. Ginger, everything was fresh. Everything was whole ingredient. Everything was delicious. Almost anything done conscientiously with intention. Can be good. Can be delicious. Yeah. Yeah. But spice rum, terrible reputation. Everybody mm -hmm. thinks of Captain Morgan and Kraken is maybe one. And like, yeah, yeah it, that's what you think of when you think of rum that was bad for you. When you first started drinking, you know, underage rum as with, a child. It's rum basically. without character. It's an artifice of character with flavor. and Sugary to all heck. And it's it's an artifice of quality and flavor. And yes. it's something that as a, another, this is another educational moment, is rum is phenomenal and fascinating and intimidatingly deep when it comes yes. to how much you can know about it. And talk about the lack of transparency. Rum, oh. the beauty and the problems, not problems, the beauty and the difficulty of rum lie in the same space, which is that it is less, it is far less regulated than a lot of the spirits that we know or have come to know well, like bourbon, things like that. There's a lot more clear regulation and that allows you to understand it a little bit better. But rum, not the same. And a lot of, you know, meaningful differences in production styles and techniques and tradition in a very, very small geographical space. And all distinct. And when you taste them side by side, you're like, Oh, how is this the same product? How in the product itself? I mean, we were talking about definitions. Rum just needs to be made from sugar or a byproduct made thereof. So it is a very wide, it, there can be a lot of things can be called rum. Yeah. So we're not going to go more into rum, but let's talk about this rum. Yes. So talk about the base of this rum, which yes. is um, very characterful as I'm smelling it. Right. Um, this is not a 
um, vodka distilled rum. No. Yeah. There, this is not a neutral rum, which is, uh, I hope it is our hope to kind of like botanical rum, uh, very much a emerging subcategory, not even necessarily something that people have ever thought about or know exists. And in the sense of comparing it to spice rum, I would say botanical rum focuses more on those fresh category or those fresh flavors. Um, botanicals, things that you would maybe find in gin. Obviously, a botanical rum does not need to have the presence of juniper and likely will not have a lot of juniper. So it's kind of a wide open, Very creative wide. realm. Yes, but really just kind of focusing on those fresh green versus spiced, which is those baking spices. So very different. Like when we think of those flavors in like baking or baked goods, very different flavors. Yeah. So when we made our botanical rum, and I had known about it for a couple of years, just kind of being curious. And we did seek out a couple um, that were interesting to us. We tried, for instance, Buchmann's, which is from Haiti, um, which is made from fresh juice and then has... As is the Haitian tradition. Of course. Um, a lot of botanicals and actually spices. So it was kind of straddling that botanical spice realm. And so that was really interesting to try. But we were like, that's that's not going to be the direction that we go in. But we tried other spiced rum or God botanical <laughs> rums that um, were neutral. The base was neutral, like you were saying. Um, and we didn't want to do that because why would we? So we wanted to make it rum first and foremost. And we went down to New Orleans. We got this beautiful molasses from a refinery, a couple hours outside of the city. And we made a very characterful rum to start. Yeah, and the, from what I can tell, the you know the character on it. Uh, when we're talking about you know these kind of rums, like it's got you know it does have that distinct you know pot still banana like note, but yeah. this is not um, when you get into Jamaican many Jamaican rums. Um, it will be that big overripe banana. Yeah. And I think this is probably the combination of the botanicals and the, you know, base spirit and the distilling method. This banana is like just, just surrounded by bright something. And I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's an herbal or like almost fruit leaves, like, you know, like fruit and coconut and just the, but bright and not, dull or fake it feels so vibrant yes on the nose thank you and tropical and weird thank you yeah it's definitely all it's heavy high weird factor yeah uh, which is tremendous in a good way yeah i think um what's the point if it's not a little bit weird? If, yeah like, if it's what, rum and it's not weird is it are really you good it, rum right i mean there's a lot of normal ass rum out there we didn't need to put another one out there no this is there's some almost menthol-y crunchy weirdness crunchy. to it yeah for sure and it's it's very crunchy on the nose it is yeah that's a great description can i take that oh please okay great i'm gonna take that that's going right in my back pocket <laughs> um so we so yeah our whole thing is is connecting spirits to place right we're playing around with terroir we're, we want to make spirits that are really indicative of where we made them so once we had this rum made, you know, this base rum made from molasses and we did, so we fermented it with, we pitched a yeast that was a rum yeast, but it was actually inoculated from a champagne yeast. And we really chose that because we knew it would give us nice fruity esters, like the banana that you're talking about. Um, and a little bit of like orangey, mango-y type stuff. 
but we were in New Orleans. And so we turned to the thing that we love most about New Orleans, which is a lot of New Orleans, but specifically the food, the um, Creole cuisine. And right, you just put gumbo right in the still. And oh, yeah, this is we what did. we got. It's a pachuga rum <laughs> that was just pitched with gumbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We put a live alligator in there, actually. Yeah, yeah of course. Just, just swimming don't around. Don't tell PETA that. Yeah. <laughs> he just swam and then we took him out and then we ran the whole thing. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, you know, yeah. just, just enough alligator. Yeah. 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 It wasn't yeah. anything horrible <laughs> like that. Um, so we saw, you know, I was, I was looking at all of these classic recipes um, and I noticed that in just about every recipe of every famous dish that comes from that region, you will find bay leaf and peppercorn. So we decided to use bay leaf and peppercorn but that was a very specific profile that was obviously not complete. We really like to create balance in our spirits. I think that's maybe what Colton and I do best is that we create, we try to really create a balanced, complete spirit uh, for us at least. And so to round that out, we went with orange peel, fresh orange peel again, peeling queen back mm-hmm. at it. Got to get it. Um, and of course, you know, Louisiana has orange, so that worked. And then a couple of kind of random ones to, to just kind of give it that structure and that, that full profile that we wanted, which was cardamom, because that kind of works well in a lot of different things. It's great, great ingredient. And cherry bark. Yeah, and that's the that's the part I was, again, trying to isolate. Cause I, that's we the talk, real wild card. Because we talked about it when we were at the thing, but I, was, I forgot all the details and sure. I was working through it. Day. And it was what I was trying to get at. There was some sort of red fruit. Yes, and it, the bay leaf is really shockingly dominant on the nose. Yeah. And it's hard because people don't, one, taste fresh bay leaves. Tip, well, it was a dried leaf. Was it dried? It okay. was a dried leaf. We went with the dried leaf. We we were looking at bay leaf, at, at fresh, um, but all of them, the ones that I could find, I was kind of, this was during the pandemic. Ah. Um, so it, it was kind of tough and, and I was getting in touch with all these people. I have some friends down there who work in the, um, the restaurant business and everybody basically said that I would need to go to a bunch of different little locations throughout New Orleans and kind of like forage the leaves myself. Which and that sounds was delightful. Just sounds really fun in the yeah. middle of the summer in New uh-huh. Orleans. Just great. Um, but it was hard to, to kind of work that out with the pandemic and everything. Yeah. So we opted to do dried bay leaf and we kind of, Figured that's also really how bay leaf is used in recipes anyways. It's also very consistent. And what we can say is, you know, people think bay leaf is a mysterious ingredient because they use one leaf in a thing and they don't taste it on its own. Right. But it has a very, um, it's almost that eucalyptus. Yes. I mean, it brings this weird note to a thing that's hard to isolate. Yeah. But in here, it's really present. Yes. Yeah. It. It's that green eucalyptus, Heavy, yeah, and it's high. There's a, this brightness to it that's driven through that that takes the banana and just elevates it. And the orange, yeah, it's all just kind of punching up. The red and, fruit, it's all there, and in a way that's complete, but you. not. It feels cohesive, but you can still isolate all the specifics. So I think the best one of the best compliments that we got. Um, was that we gave our spirits to a distiller that we really respected. And I think that one of the first things he said was that the flavors were concise. Yeah. And that was great because that was what we wanted. We, I, I don't love, I, I am intrigued by, but I don't love when a spirit is 
lacks structure and the flavors are just kind of all over and they kind of like they're flabby sometimes is yeah. how it's described. And, and I think you can really get that once you try it. But I, I love that these, and this is a testament to Colton, these spirits came out with beautiful, concise flavor. Can I say a thing? My favorite part. I love all the, I love the nose. I love the start. You know, the mid's interesting, but that lingering cherry bark flavor I know. is, oh, it's, it, when we talk about spirits and we're evaluating, right? We, we talk about evolution as, you know, it's complexity and evolution. They tie together, but it's, there's a progression to tasting something. It's where does it hit on the palate? What is it evoking? What's the fun thing? And this, it's the lingering wood tannin, yeah. but it's fruity wood tannin all the way through to the end. And it's, it lingers in a way where it's so present, yeah. but it doesn't feel like it's too much. It's like, wait for it. And it continues and it continues and it continues. And then you're like, got it time for the next sip. Yeah. It and really that's is. why I love stuff where it's made with intention. Like, oh, when you tasted that, you know, when you taste it during the process and you taste that version of it and you're like, this is it. Yeah. Cause it tastes complete. It, yeah, it, it was a, this was definitely a longer process, um, production wise, getting it to the, the exact right point. I think because we were dealing in flavor profiles that are not always something that, you know, it's, it's pretty rare to go so savory and it was, it was not something that we had done a lot of. And so, we were really playing around with the exact proportion. And at one point we even did like we did with this product do all of the botanicals, a run of all the botanicals pitched. We did maceration and redistillation for anybody who's out there. Who's a spirits nerd. Mm -hmm. There's a couple different ways you can infuse flavor. One way is to macerate, which is basically like making a tea with your botanicals. We put it into a bag and we would put it in. Um, so, maceration redistillation we did all of the ingredients together with this but we eventually did like a second run with the same base and everything of just orange peel because we wanted to really bring up that orange peel but it took a while to get to this point yeah which i think has what we were going for it's very layered it's obviously thought out because you don't get to that level of complexity without really working through it yeah because it's it could become a real mash of intense, bitter, weird, uh, distasteful flavors. All of these things could easily overpower a product. And I'm sure oh, yeah. you had those instances. Oh, yeah. I, I remember <laughs> many times that the production of this spirit, I feel like Cole and I were sitting at the, uh, the table at Porch Jam, which is where we made it, uh, Porch Jam Distillation in New Orleans, Louisiana, in Mid-City neighborhood. Uh, which is run by a very good friend of ours, Jason Zeno. And many times we had, I, I think sat, we were sat at the table there and tasting the distillate, the samples that we'd pulled. And we were talking to each other being like, is this good? Is this good? Do we, this is good, right? This is something people are going to like. Is yeah. this something that is, is, is this going to work? It's so crazy. It's so weird. It's, it's quite off, off the wall, but we really like it. Like we can't stop coming back to it and it's the kind of thing where again when i talked about the first time that the further sips got different aspects like after i've tried it now three times it's 
now the molasses is coming out. Yes. You know, that real dark note and a little bit of that acrid backbone. Yeah. And I say that as a positive because it keeps the flavor going. And that's a key part of molasses. Transitions away. Like, that's important. That ash content will give you that kind of, like, sharp, slightly bitter, but really earthy, bitter kind of note that you get. All right, we've talked way too much nice things about your stuff. Yeah, and we, we've been honestly, we've been really far too. I'm nice. not going to be able to fit out the door. My head's too big. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a dumb joke. So we're gonna do we're gonna do one brief sample to finish out. We've reached our time, but um, I mentioned a um, an Alps, you know, an Alpine liqueur. I am so excited. So this one is um, called Zirbens. Um, this is distributed by House Alpens, which oh, yeah. one of the finer um, fine. finer uh, distributors of weird products. They're super solid. Talking about rum portfolio, they have oh, a really yeah. cool one. Yeah, that is a much more um, traditionally alpine name. What is it? Zirbens? Yeah, I always heard it pronounced Zirbens. I'm sure you can probably just say Zirbens. Zirbens? Yeah, I always... <laughs> I always I always heard it in my mind as Zirbens. Zirbens. So they they call this the Stone Pine Liqueur of the Alps. Okay. So the first time I tasted this was a 20-year-old version of it. Mm. Um, this is obviously not that. Mm-hmm. But this is, I guess this, this one's kind of a definition of lack of subtlety. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right, though. It, it is not what I was expecting. So... I'll give you the heads. This is, I'd say, this is kind of the definition of like resin and bitter and yeah, pine. pine as and heck. it is punchy. Yeah. But there is like delicious. a pretty fruity nu- nuance to it. I don't yeah. even know if it's a whole note, but there's just like fruitiness at the edges that's nice. I it think is. It's always nice to have like with the, I mean, hate to bring it back to my own product but with <laughs> rum with the rum and talking about that cherry bark like it's nice when you have yeah. a woody note to have something a little bit lighter and brighter on those edges to just kind of take off the it's like wine in that way though for if sure you just had tannin and no fruit that's a that's not going to be that that's going to be tough to drink you wouldn't enjoy it not as enjoyable so the other thing on this is like a menthol so it's like yeah, menthol and menthol and pine and resin and when you taste it it's like oh and talking about herbal whoa yeah so it does it does have enough sweetness where it tastes like you know it's pine resin with a little bit of whatever other herbs are using but that sweet resin pine thing with the herbal there's some sort of fruit some sort of like red fruit yeah. Whatever it is. Could Whatever be, it may be. Could be currants. Could be. Could be currants. I wouldn't be shocked if it was currants. I wouldn't be shocked either. That's, that's a pretty guess. good. That's a pretty good shout. I think you might be right. But it could be cherry. Yeah. You know, it could be, you know, tart cherries or whatever. But Kirsch. it's so interesting, but it is pine forward. Yeah. But enough sweetness where you want to go back for the next sip. It is weird. It is weird. There's also like... um. In the in the best possible way, a little bit of like a barnyardy, oh yeah, heavy barnyard for sure thing happening, a little hamster cage in a good way. Yeah, it's you know it's like it's like you cut pine boards, yes. and it's right yes. in the middle of it. Like a, you can still see the kind of like 
dust of the yeah, pine board cutting thing. on a circle saw exactly. and it's going yeah it's just like there's some pine dust to it you're just surrounded by untreated pine yeah yeah it, it's a fascinating product and one that you know again it's fun to explore all the world of you know um of infused you know amaro and liqueurs oh that's a real interest to me right now all the world of that is infinite and we could talk about that for all of the time <laughs> All of the time. That deserves its own. Yes. And what we're going to do, we're going to wrap up for this time. Perfect. So please tell people again, where can people find Liba Spirits and how can they find it in a store or request to their store that they should carry it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So just to get the, the online out of the way, we are at Liba. Liba is L-I-B-A. Tried to keep it simple. Uh, L-I-B-A Spirits, S-P-I-R-I-T-S, at Liba Spirits on Instagram and Facebook. And again, you could find us on Twitter. Um, but we are also, we have a website, LibaSpirits.com. Um, and then we are in Rochester. We are at Parkway, which has Parkway up, I guess it's in Greece. Yep, in Greece. Yep, great store. Great store. Incredible prices. I, that sounds like an ad, but it's just genuinely. I was shocked. Their their margins are incredible. It's a tremendous store. It's, it's a tremendous cert- store. Yep. Run by well, in you know the spirit section, large part is run by George, who is phenomenal. Yep, just one of my good buddies. Wonderful presence in this industry. We're lucky to have him. Absolutely. And then we're in Baytown. Yep, Baytown. Well. Baytown also one of the highest quality spirit and wine stores um, up in Webster. Beautiful new store. Passionate folk. Passionate folks. I mean, they've got some real high-end nerds working at that place um, that I adore talking to. And it is a, um, both of those stores are the go-tos along with them. And Pinnacle are places where you should be shopping. Um, If you're spending your money on wine and spirits, spend it at stores that care about what they're doing. Not to say the other stores don't have good quality products or don't care, but... But these places here, I'll tell you it to you from a supplier standpoint. They're the lifeblood. Yeah. They, we do not get to do what we're doing without them. We do not get to exist as, you know, fun, interesting new spirits that, that make this whole thing kind of worthwhile and a little bit intriguing. It doesn't get to happen without those. I, those people who run those stores have become almost consistently the best, you know, people for us partners with us in this endeavor they have they are always so supportive so passionate so caring and all they want to do is give you good stuff so go support them yeah support the good stores drink good stuff drink good stuff yeah well this was a pleasure and um, oh wait just to really quick answer your question about um how to get it in stores that don't yes it is worthwhile and I'm saying this on behalf of myself, but also just on behalf of any other producer that you would be curious to have. It is very worthwhile to go up to a store and ask. And if they'd say, we don't carry it, say, oh, is there like any way you could? Is there any, you know, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm, I'm genuinely really trying to. I am motivated to buy this product. That is meaningful. You don't realize how meaningful it is. Yeah, for so sure. If you have any inkling, go for it. Love it. Um, and on that note, um, one delicious stuff. We tasted it. We gave tons of tasting notes. 
highly recommended. So go do that. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can hit me at Sturmy on Twitter and Instagram, Food About Town on Facebook, Food About Town Podcast on Instagram after all these years. And uh, make sure you go to curatemeals.com to order your meal for one of our upcoming events. Um, we've got some really interesting restaurants coming up and more partners in the future. Thank you so much for coming over. This was a delight. Thank you so much for having me. And also, I'm so embarrassed that it took me a very long time to realize that Food About Town is an acronym. Well, it's always it's, there's always more levels to everything, isn't there's, there? Everything's so complex. So many layers. Layers. Shrek. All right. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> music for the Food About Town podcast is provided by Taurus Savant. You can find more of his music on taurussavant.bandcamp.com. The Food About Town podcast is a proud member of the Lunchador Podcast Network. Follow Lunchador at Lunchador Podcasts on Instagram to see when new episodes drop from all the great shows on our fantastic network.